This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. Tonight's bedtime story is by an author I've never read on the show before, and I really, really enjoyed reading this. But before we get to the bedtime story, uh, I just want to profoundly thank all of our brand new patrons on Patreon.com which is a website where you can go and pledge a couple bucks to uh, listen to an ad-free version of the show. So, this week's patrons, Melissa Eloshwe, Audra Hill, Susan Stokes, Cedar, Rachel, Kristen Inman, Tracy, and big thanks to Sloan and Austin. Thank you all so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. It really, really means a lot. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, the names that I just read, they are brand new supporters of Sleepy on Patreon.com, which is a website 
where you can directly support creators of the work that you like. So if uh, the Sleepy Podcast has become part of your nightly routine, maybe it's helped you get a better night's rest, then consider going to patreon.com and donating even a dollar a month. At $2, like I said, um, we get a totally ad-free version of the show. And at $5, you get access to our exclusive poetry feed. But um, even if you donate a dollar, that goes a really, really long way. And um, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, if you would like to be a part of making this show, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover-up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight's story is called The Grand Babylon Hotel by Arnold Bennett. Uh, I have never read anything by... Arnold betted on the show, but um, after reading this, I really, really enjoy his writing. It definitely feels like it's meant to be read out loud, kind of perfect for a bedtime story, um, and it uh, takes place within the restaurant of this grand hotel, and um, it's very, very visual, and it's uh, easy to get lost in even the first couple chapters. So, I really hope you like this bedtime story tonight. And if you do, and if you like uh, Arnold Bennett, then um, leave a little review of that in the Spotify replies or Apple Podcasts or whatever. I love hearing what authors uh, you like. So, Without further ado, The Grand Babylon Hotel by Arnold Bennett. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you. Chapter 1. The Millionaire and the Waiter Yes, sir. Jules, the celebrated head waiter of the Grand Babylon, was bending formally towards the alert, middle-aged man who had just entered the smoking room and dropped into a basket chair in the corner by the conservatory. It was 7.45 on a particularly sultry June night and dinner was about to be served at the Grand Babylon. Men of all sizes and nationalities, but everyone alike arrayed in faultless evening dress, were dotted about the large, dim apartment. A faint odor of flowers came from the conservatory and the tinkle of a fountain. The waiters, commanded by jewels, moved softly across the thick oriental rugs, balancing their trays with the dexterity of jugglers and receiving and executing orders with that air of profound importance of which only really first-class waiters have the secret. The atmosphere was an atmosphere of serenity and repose, characteristic of the Grand Babylon. It seemed impossible that anything could occur to mar the peaceful, aristocratic monotony of existence in that perfectly managed establishment. It on that night was to happen the mightiest upheaval that the Grand Babylon had ever known. Yes, sir, repeated Jules, and this time there was a shade of August disapproval in his voice. It was not usual for him to have to address a customer twice. Oh, said the alert, middle-aged man, 
looking up at length, beautifully ignorant of the identity of the great jewels. He allowed his gray eyes to twinkle as he caught sight of the expression on the waiter's face. Bring me an angel kiss. Pardon, sir? Bring me an angel kiss and be good enough to lose no time. If it's an American drink, I fear we don't keep it, sir. The voice of Jules fell icily distinct and several men glanced round uneasily as if to deprecate the slightest disturbance of their calm. The appearance of the person to whom Jules was speaking, however, reassured them somewhat, for he had all the look of that expert, the traveled Englishman who can differentiate between one hotel and another by instinct, and who knows at once where he may make a fuss with propriety, and where it is advisable to behave exactly as at the club. The Grand Babylon was a hotel in whose smoking room one behaved as though one was at one's club. I didn't suppose you did keep it, but you can mix it, I guess, even in this hotel. This isn't an American hotel, sir. The calculated insolence of the words was cleverly masked beneath an accent of humble submission. The alert, middle-aged man sat up straight and gazed placidly at Jules, who was pulling his famous red side whiskers. Get a liqueur glass, he said, half curtly and half good-humored tolerance. Pour into it equal quantities of maraschino, cream, and creme de menthe. Don't stir it. Don't shake it. Bring it to me. And I say, Tell the bartender. Bartender, sir. Tell the bartender to make a note of the recipe, as I shall probably want an angel kiss every evening before dinner, so long as this weather lasts. I will send the drink to you, sir, said Jules distantly. That was his parting shot, by which he indicated that he was not as other waiters are and that any person who treated him with disrespect did so at his own peril. A few minutes later, while the alert middle-aged man was tasting the angel kiss, Jules sat in conclave with Miss Spencer, who had charge of the Bureau of the Grand Babylon. This bureau was a fairly large chamber, with two sliding glass partitions which overlooked the entrance hall and the smoking room. Only a small portion of the clerical work of the Grey Hotel was performed there. The place served chiefly as the lair of Miss Spencer, who was as well known and important as Jules himself. Most modern hotels have a male clerk to superintend the bureau but the Grand Babylon went its own way. Miss Spencer had been bureau clerk almost since the Grand Babylon had first raised its massive chimneys to heaven, and she remained in her place, despite the vagaries of other hotels. Always admirably dressed in plain black silk with a small diamond brooch, immaculate wristbands, and frizzed yellow hair, she looked now just as she looked an indefinite number of years ago. Her age, none knew it, save herself and perhaps one other, and none cared. The gracious and alluring contours of her figure were irreproachable, and in the evenings she was a useful ornament of which any hotel might be innocently proud. Her knowledge of Bradshaw, of steamship services, and the programs of theaters and music halls was unrivaled. Yet she never traveled. She never went to a theater or a music hall. She seemed to spend the whole of her life in that official lair of hers, imparting information to guests, telephoning to the various departments, or engaged in intimate conversations with her special friends on the staff, as at present. 
Who's number 107? Jules asked this black-robed lady. Miss Spencer examined her ledgers. Mr. Theodore Raxall, New York. I thought he must be a New Yorker, said Jules, after a brief, significant pause. But he talks as good English as you or me. Says he wants an angel kiss. Maraschino and cream, if you please, every night. I'll see he doesn't stop here too long. Miss Spencer smiled grimly in response. The notion of referring to Theodore Raxall as a New Yorker appealed to her sense of humor, a sense in which she was not entirely deficient. She knew, of course, and she knew that Jules knew, that this Theodore Raxall must be the unique and only Theodore Raxall, the third richest man in the United States, and therefore probably in the world. Nevertheless, she ranged herself at once on the side of Jules. Just as there was only one Raxall, so was there only one Jules, and Miss Spencer instinctively shared the latter's indignation at the spectacle of any person whatsoever, millionaire or emperor, presuming to demand an angel kiss, that unrespectable concoction of maraschino and cream of the precincts of the Grand Babylon. In the world of hotels, it was currently stated that, next to the proprietor, there were three gods at the Grand Babylon. Jules, the head waiter, Miss Spencer, the most powerful of all, Rocco, the renowned chef, who earned 2000 a year and had a chalet on the lake of Lucerne. All the great hotels in Northumberland Avenue and on the Thames Embankment had tried to get Rocco away from the Grand Babylon, but without success. Rocco was well aware that even he could rise no higher than the major hotel of the Grand Babylon, which, though it was never advertised itself and didn't belong to limited company, stood an easy first among the hotels of Europe. First in expensiveness, first in exclusiveness, first in that mysterious quality known as style. Situated on the embankment, the Grand Babylon, despite its noble proportions, was somewhat dwarfed by several colossal neighbors. It had but 350 rooms, whereas there are two hotels within a quarter of a mile with 600 and 400 rooms, respectively. On the other hand, the Grand Babylon was the only hotel in London with a genuine separate entrance for royal visitors constantly in use. The Grand Babylon counted that day wasted on which it did not entertain. At the lowest, a German prince or a Maharaj of some Indian state when Felix Babylon, after whom, and not with any reference to London's nickname, the hotel was christened, when Felix Babylon founded the hotel in 1869, he had set himself up to cater for royalty, and that was his secret of his triumphant eminence. The son of a rich Swiss hotel proprietor and financier, he had contrived to establish a connection with the officials of several European courts, and he had not spared money in that respect. Sundry kings, and not a few princesses, called him Felix, and spoke familiarly of the hotel as Felix's, and Felix had found that this was very good for trade. The Grand Babylon was managed accordingly. The no of its policy was discretion, always discretion, and quietude, simplicity, remoteness. The place was like a palace incognito. There was no gold sign over the roof, not even an explanatory word at the entrance. 
He walked down a small side street off the strand. You saw a plain brown building in front of you with two mahogany swing doors and an official behind each. The doors opened noiselessly. You entered. You were in Felix's. If you meant to be a guest, you or your courier gave your card to Miss Spencer. Upon no consideration did you ask for the tariff. It was not good form to mention prices at the Grand Babylon. The prices were enormous, but you never mentioned them. At the conclusion of your stay, a bill was presented, brief and void of dry details, and you paid it without a word. You met with a stately civility. That was all. No one had originally asked you to come. No one expressed the hope that you would come again. The Grand Babylon was far above such maneuvers. It defied competition by ignoring it, and consequently was nearly always full during the season. If there was one thing more than another that annoyed the Grand Babylon, but its backup, so to speak, it was to be compared with or to be mistaken for an American hotel. The Grand Babylon was resolutely opposed to American methods of eating, drinking, and lodging, but especially American methods of drinking. The resentment of Jules, on being requested to supply Mr. Theodore Raxall with an angel kiss, will therefore be appreciated. Anybody with Mr. Theodore Raxall, asked Jules, continuing his conversation with Miss Spencer. He put a scornful stress on every syllable of the guest's name. Miss Raxall. She's in number 111. Jules paused and stroked his left whisker as it lay on his gleaming white collar. She's where, he queried, with a peculiar emphasis. Number 111. I couldn't help it. There was no other room with a bathroom and a dressing room on that floor. Miss Spencer's voice had an appealing tone of excuse. Why didn't you tell Mr. Theodore Raxall and Miss Raxall that we were unable to accommodate them? Because Babs was within hearing. Only three people in the wide world ever dreamt of applying to Mr. Felix Babylon, the playful but mean abbreviation, Babs. Those three were Jules, Miss Spencer, and Rocco. Jules had invented it. No one but he would have had either the wit or the audacity to do so. You'd better see that Miss Raxall changes her room tonight, Jules said after another pause. Leave it to me. I'll fix it. Au revoir. It's three minutes to eight. I shall take charge of the dining room myself tonight. And Jules departed, rubbing his fine white hands slowly and meditatively. It was a trick of his to rub his hands with a strange roundabout motion, and the action denoted that some unusual excitement was in the air. At eight o'clock, precisely, dinner was served in the immense salamander, that chaste yet splendid apartment of white and gold. At a small table near one of the windows, a young lady sat alone. Her frock said Paris, but her face unmistakably said New York. It was a self-possessed and bewitching face the face of a woman thoroughly accustomed to doing exactly what she liked, when she liked, how she liked. The face of a woman who had taught hundreds of gilded young men the true art of fetching and carrying, and who, by twenty years or so of parental spoiling, had come to regard herself as the feminine equivalent 
the czar of all the Russias. Such women are only made in America, and they only come to their full bloom in Europe, which they imagine to be a continent created by Providence for their diversion. The young lady by the window glanced disapprovingly at the menu card. Then she looked round the dining room, and while admiring the diners, decided that the room itself was rather small and plain. Then she gazed through the open window and told herself that though the Thames by twilight was passable enough, it was by no means level with the Hudson, on whose shores her father had a hundred thousand dollar country cottage. Then she returned to the menu and with a pursing of lovely lips said that there appeared to be nothing to eat. Sorry to keep you waiting, Nella. It was Mr. Raxall, the intrepid millionaire who had dared to order an angel kiss in the smoke room of the Grand Babylon. Nella, her proper name was Helen, smiled at her parent cautiously, reserving to herself the right to scold if she could feel so inclined. You always are late, father, she said. Only on a holiday, he added. What is there to eat? Nothing. Then let's have it. I'm hungry. I'm never so hungry as when I'm being seriously idle. Consomme Britannia. She began to read out from the menu. Salmon de Acos. Sauce Genoisie. Aspics del Mar. Oh, heavens, who wants these horrid messes on a night like this? Vanilla, this is the best cooking in Europe, he protested. Say, father, she said, with seeming irrelevance, had you forgotten it's my birthday tomorrow? Have I ever forgotten your birthday, oh, most costly daughter? On the whole, you've been a most satisfactory dad, she answered sweetly. And to reward you, I'll be content this year with the cheapest birthday tree you could ever give me. Only, I'll have it tonight. Well, he said, with the long-suffering patience and readiness for any surprise of a parent whom Nella had thoroughly trained. What is it? It's this. Let's have filleted steak and a bottle of bass for dinner tonight. It will be simply exquisite. I shall love it. But my dear Nella, he exclaimed, steak and beer at Felix's. It's impossible. Moreover, young women still under 23 cannot be permitted to drink bass. I said steak and bass. And as for being 23, shall be going in 24 tomorrow. Miss Raxall set her small white teeth. There was a gentle cough. Jules stood over them. It must have been out of pure spirit of adventure that he had selected this table for his own services. Usually Jules did not personally wait at dinner. He merely hovered, observant, like a captain on the bridge during the mate's watch. Regular frequenters of the hotel felt themselves honored when Jules attached himself to their tables. Theodore Raxall hesitated one second and then issued the order with a fine air of carelessness. Filleted steak for two and a bottle of bass. It was the bravest act of Theodore Raxall's life, and yet at more than one previous crisis, a high courage had not been lacking to him. It's not in the menu, sir, said Jules, the imperturbable. Never mind. Get it. We want it. Very good, sir. 
Jules walked to the service door and merely affecting to look behind came immediately back again. Mr. Rocco's compliments, sir, and he regrets to be unable to serve steak and bass tonight, sir. Mr. Rocco, questioned Raxall lightly. Mr. Rocco, repeated Jules with firmness. And who is Mr. Rocco? Mr. Rocco is our chef, sir. Jules had the expression of a man who was asked to explain who Shakespeare was. The two men looked at each other. It seemed incredible that Theodore Raxall, the ineffable Raxall, who owned a thousand miles of railway, several towns, and sixty votes in Congress, should be defied by a waiter, or even by a whole hotel. Yet, so it was. When Europe's effet back is against the wall, not a regiment of millionaires can turn its flank. Jules had the calm expression of a strong man, sure of victory. His face said, You beat me once, but not this time, my New York friend. As for Nella, knowing her father, she foresaw interesting events and waited confidently for the stake. She did not feel hungry, and she could afford to wait. Excuse me a moment, Nella, said Theodore Raxall quietly. I shall be back in about two seconds. And he strode out of the salle à manger. No one in the room recognized the millionaire, for he was unknown to London, this being his first visit to Europe for over twenty years. Had anyone done so, and caught the expression on his face, that man might have trembled for an explosion which would have blown the entire Grand Babylon into the Thames. Jules retired strategically to a corner. He had fired. It was the antagonist's turn. A long and varied experience had taught Jules that a guest who embarks on the subjugation of a waiter is almost always lost. The waiter has so many advantages in such a contest. Chapter 2 How Mr. Raxall Obtained His Dinner Nevertheless, there are men with a confirmed habit of getting their own way even as guests in an exclusive hotel, and Theodore Raxall had long since fallen into that useful practice, except when his only daughter, Helen, motherless but high-spirited girl, chose to think that his way crossed hers, in which case Theodore capitulated and fell back. But when Theodore and his daughter happened to be going one and the same road, which was pretty often, then heaven alone might help any obstacle that was so ill-advised as to stand in their path. Jules, great and observant though he was, had not noticed the terrible projecting chins of both father and daughter. Otherwise it is possible he would have reconsidered the question of the steak and bass. Theodore Raxall went direct to the entrance hall of the hotel and entered Miss Spencer's sanctum. I want to see Mr. Babylon, he said, without the delay of an instant. Miss Spencer leisurely raised her flaxen head. I am afraid, she began the usual formula. It was part of her daily duty to discourage guests who desired to see Mr. Babylon. No, no, said Raxall quickly. I don't want any, I'm afraid. This is business. If you had been the ordinary hotel clerk, I should have slipped you a couple of sovereigns into your hand, and the thing would have been done. As you are not, as you are obviously above bribes, I merely say to you, I must see Mr. Babylon at once on an affair of the utmost urgency. My name is Raxall. Theodore Raxall, 
of New York, questioned a voice at the door with a slight foreign accent. The millionaire turned sharply and saw a rather short, French-looking man with a bald head, a gray beard, and a long and perfectly built frock coat, eyeglasses attached to a minute silver chain, and blue eyes that seemed to have the transparent innocence of a maid's. There is only one, said Theodore Rexall, succinctly. You wish to see me, the newcomer suggested. You are Mr. Felix Babylon. The man bowed. At this moment, I wish to see you more than anyone else in the world, said Raxall. I am consumed and burnt up with a desire to see you, Mr. Babylon. I only want a few minutes quiet chat. I fancy I can settle my business in that time. With a gesture, Mr. Babylon invited the millionaire down a side corridor, at the end of which was Mr. Babylon's private room, a miracle of Louis XV furniture and tapestry. Like most unmarried men with large incomes, Mr. Babylon had tastes of a highly expensive sort. The landlord and his guests sat down opposite each other. Theodore Raxall had met with the usual millionaire's luck in this adventure, for Mr. Babylon made a practice of not allowing himself to be interviewed by his guests, however distinguished, however wealthy, however pertinacious. If he had not chanced to enter Miss Spencer's office at that precise moment, and if he had not been impressed in a somewhat peculiar way by the physiognomy of the millionaire, not all of Mr. Raxall's American energy and ingenuity would have availed for a confabulation with the owner of the Grand Babylon Hotel that night. Theodore Raxall, however, was ignorant that a mere accident had served him. He took all the credit to himself. I read in the New York papers some months ago, Theodore started, without even a clearing of the throat, that this hotel of yours, Mr. Babylon, was to be sold to a limited company, but it appears that the sale was not carried out. It was not, answered Mr. Babylon, frankly, and the reason was that the middle-aged men between the proposed company and myself wished to make a large secret profit, and I declined to be party to such a profit. They were firm, and I was firm, so the affair came to nothing. The agreed price was satisfactory. Quite. May I ask what the price was? Are you a buyer, Mr. Axel? Are you a seller, Mr. Babylon? I am, said Babylon, on terms. The price was 400,000 pounds, including the leasehold and goodwill. But I sell only on the condition that the buyer does not transfer the property to a limited company at a higher figure. I will put one question to you, Mr. Babylon, said the millionaire. What have your profits averaged during the last four years? 34,000 pounds per annum. I buy, said Theodore Raxall, smiling contentedly. And we will, if you please, exchange contract letters on the spot. You come quickly to a resolution, Mr. Raxall. But perhaps you have been considering this question for a long time. On the contrary, Mr. Axel looked at his watch. I have been considering it for six minutes. Felix Babylon bowed as one thoroughly accustomed to eccentricity of wealth. The beauty of being well known, Raxel continued is that you needn't trouble about preliminary explanations. 
You, Mr. Babylon, probably know all about me. I know a good deal about you. We can take each other for granted without reference. Really, it is as simple to buy a hotel or railroad as it is to buy a watch, provided one is equal to the transaction. Precisely, agreed Mr. Babylon, smiling. Shall we draw out the little informal contract? There are details to be thought of. But it occurs to me that you cannot have dined yet, and might prefer to deal with minor questions after dinner. I have not dined, said the millionaire, with emphasis. And in that connection, will you do me a favor? Will you send for Mr. Rocco? You wish to see him, naturally. I do, said the millionaire, and added, about my dinner. Rocco is a great man, murmured Mr. Babylon, as he touched the bell, ignoring the last words. My compliments to Mr. Rocco, he said to the page who answered his summons. And if it is quite convenient, and if it is quite convenient, I should be glad to see him here for a moment. What do you give, Rocco? Raxel inquired. Two thousand a year and the treatment of an ambassador. I shall give him the treatment of an ambassador and three thousand. You will be wise, said Felix Babylon. At that moment, Rocco came into the room, very softly, a man of forty, thin, with long, thin hands, and an inordinately long, brown, silky mustache. Rocco, said Felix Babylon, let me introduce Mr. Theodore Raxall of New York. Charm, said Rocco, bowing. The, the, what do you call it, millionaire? Exactly, Raxall put in, and continued quickly. Mr. Rocco, I wish to acquaint you before any other person with the fact that I have purchased the Grand Babylon Hotel. If you think well to afford me the privilege of retaining your services, I shall be happy to offer you a remuneration of three thousand a year. Three, you said. Three. Charmed. And now, Mr. Rocco, will you oblige me very much by ordering a plain beefsteak and a bottle of bass to be served by Jules? I particularly desire Jules at table number 17 in the dining room in ten minutes from now. And will you do me the honor of lunching with me tomorrow? Mr. Rocco gasped, bowed, muttered something in French and departed. Five minutes later, the buyer and seller of the Grand Babylon Hotel had each signed a curt document, scribbled out on the hotel notepaper. Felix Babylon asked no questions, and it was this heroic absence of curiosity, the surprise on his part, that more than anything else impressed Theodore Raxall. How many hotel proprietors in the world, Raxall asked himself, would have let that beefsteak and bass go by without a word of comment? From what day do you wish the purchase to take effect, asked Babylon. Oh, said Raxall lightly, it doesn't matter. Shall we say from tonight? As you will. I have long wished to retire, but now the moment has come, and so dramatically I am ready. I shall return to Switzerland. One cannot spend much money there, but it is my native land. I shall be the richest man in Switzerland. He smiled with a kind of sad amusement. I suppose you are fairly well off, said Raxall in that easy, familiar style of his, as though the idea had just occurred to him. 
Besides what I shall receive from you, I have half a million invested. Then you will be nearly a millionaire. Felix Babylon nodded. I congratulate you, my dear sir, said Raxall, in the tone of a judge addressing a newly admitted barrister. 900,000 pounds, expressed in francs, will sound very nice in Switzerland. Of course, to you, Mr. Raxall, such a sum would be poverty. Now, if one might guess at your own wealth, Felix Babylon was imitating the other's freedom. I do not know. To five millions or so, what I am worth, said Raxall, with sincerity. His tone indicating that he would have been glad to give the information if it were in his power. You have had anxieties, Mr. Raxall. Still have them. I am now holiday-making in London with my daughter in order to get rid of them for a time. Is the purchase of hotels your notion of relaxation, then? Raxall shrugged his shoulders. It is a change from railroads, he laughed. Ah, my friend, you little know what you have bought. Oh, yes I do, returned Raxall. I have bought just the first hotel in the world. That is true, that is true, Babylon admitted, gazing meditatively at the antique Persian carpet. There is nothing anywhere like my hotel. But you will regret the purchase, Mr. Axel. It is no business of mine, of course, but I cannot help repeating that you will regret the purchase. I never regret. Then you will begin very soon. Perhaps tonight. Why do you say that? Because the Grand Babylon is the Grand Babylon. You think because you control a railroad or an ironworks or a line of steamers, therefore you can control anything. But no, not the Grand Babylon. There is something about the Grand Babylon. He threw up his hands. Servants rob you, of course. Of course. I suppose I lose a hundred pounds a week in that way. But it is not what I mean. It is the guests. The guests are too... too distinguished. The great ambassadors. The great financiers. The great nobles. All the men that move the world put up under my roof. London is the center of everything. And my hotel, your hotel, is the center of London. Once I had a king and a dowager empress staying here at the same time. Imagine that. A great honor, Mr. Babylon. But wherein lies the difficulty? Mr. Raxall was the grim reply. What has become of your shrewdness? that shrewdness which has made your fortune so immense that even you cannot calculate it. Do you not perceive that the roof which habitually shelters all the force, all the authority in the world, must necessarily also shelter nameless and numberless plotters, schemers, evildoers, and workers of mischief? The thing is as clear as day and as dark as night. Mr. Axel, I never know by whom I am surrounded. I never know what is going forward. Only sometimes I get hints, glimpses of strange acts and strange secrets. You mentioned my servants. They are almost all good servants, skilled, competent. But what are they besides? For anything, I know my fourth subchef may be an agent of some European government. For anything I know, my invaluable Miss Spencer may be in the pay of a court dressmaker or a Frankfurt banker. Even Rocco may be someone else in addition to Rocco. That makes it all the more interesting, remarked Theodore Raxall, 
What a long time you've been, father, said Nella, when he returned to table number 17 in the Salmanger. Only 20 minutes, my dove. But you said two seconds. There's a difference. Well, you see, I had to wait for the steak to cook. Did you have much trouble in getting my birthday tree? No trouble. But it didn't come quite as cheap as you said. What do you mean, father? Only that I've bought the entire hotel. But don't split. Father, you always were a delicious parent. Shall you give me the hotel for my birthday present? No, I shall run it as an amusement. By the way, who is that chair for? He noticed a third cover had been laid at the table. That is for a friend of mine who came in about five minutes ago. Of course, I told him he must share our stay. He'll be here in a moment. May I respectfully inquire his name? Dimmick. Christian name Reginald. Profession, English companion to Prince Araber of Pawson. I met him when I was in St. Petersburg with cousin Hetty last fall. Oh, here he is. Mr. Dimmick, this is my dear father. He has succeeded with the stake. Theodore Raxall found himself confronted by a very young man with deep black eyes and a fresh boyish expression. They began to talk. Jules approached with the steak. Raxall tried to catch the waiter's eye, but could not. The dinner proceeded. Oh, father, cried Nella, what a lot of mustard you have taken. Have I? he said, and then he happened to glance into a mirror on his left hand between two windows. He saw the reflection of Jules, who stood behind his chair, and he saw Jules give a slow, significant, ominous wink to Mr. Dimmick, Christian name, Reginald. He examined his mustard in silence. He thought, that perhaps he had helped himself rather plenteously to mustard. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.